0: From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Ross. My guest on this episode is Hava McKeel, the Director of Government Relations for the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America. Hava directs and manages programs and activities of the Government Affairs Department to promote the Golf Course Superintendents as professional land managers and provides regulatory compliance information to GCSAA members. Hava earned a bachelor's degree in political science and geography from the University of Kansas and worked in the Kansas State Center. The regulatory environment Hava and I will be discussing is beginning to include nutrient use, especially nitrogen and phosphorus. Proper use of these nutrients is part of your nutrient management plan, and the products you use matter. The Plant Food Company of New Jersey provides a collection of products designed and proven to be effective, not just for plant nutrition, but also stress tolerance and water management. Learn more about improving water management and stress tolerance from your local plant food rep or at plantfoodco.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Hava McKeel. You're the Director of Government Relations, and oddly enough, we haven't had you on for a long time, but I would have called you a regular contributor just a few years ago when we were making our way through a number of administrations. We're on our third administration together. I think we started chatting in the Obama administration and then uh, went through the Trump years. And now we're in the Biden years. And we just signed this landmark agreement, Memorandum of Understanding between the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America and the Environmental Protection Agency back in September. And I wonder if you couldn't take a minute. Thanks for joining me.
1: Well, thanks for having me, yeah, Frank. Yeah,
0: great. And and talking to us about what looks like really something that should get noticed maybe more than it is by golf course superintendent. So that's why I wanted to have you on. Appreciate you taking the time to do it. Fill me in on what this means. Start. Let's start at a 30,000 foot level. What this agreement between the GCSA and the EPA actually means.
1: Sure. It's all about creating forward-thinking options for environmental improvements and, and environmental stewardship efforts out on golf properties across the country. It is a recognition that golf courses are valuable green spaces in this country. It's a recognition of superintendents as professional land managers. But again, it's a recognition that golf courses across this country provide so many benefits. And we all who live in this game understand that and know that. But you know, whether it's access to green space in general, we know how important that was during COVID, to pollutant filters, to temperature buffers, The list goes on and on, but this particular program is a partnership that creates a safe space to talk about issues, to talk about regulations. It's a space to demystify superintendents and educate them about the regulatory environment, though at the heart of this, at 30,000 foot, it is about problem-solving And that's why I feel so passionately about this partnership with the EPA, Hmm. problem solving. There are challenges that golf properties face and our superintendent members may not understand what those resources are that are available to them through this Environmental Protection Agency. That's really stood out to me in all the conversations that I've had with EPA officials up to this point. They feel very strongly and deeply that if there are superintendents across this country that want to be doing things to enhance and improve the environment, they want to be there to help move those things forward. And they think Mm -hmm. that golf courses are of value in that effort. So whether Mm -hmm. that's coming out and providing technical assistance to them or pointing them in the right direction where there might be funding, grant dollars, resources available for them for implementation. It's just really exciting, Frank. And one point, I wanted to make sure that was clear is that it's not a regulatory enforcement focus. There's a, there's a firewall between those parts of EPA and this partnerships uh, section of EPA that we're, we're talking about, the smart sector program. Right.
0: Let's talk a little bit about this Smart Sectors program. First off, I would say it looks like what we're talking about here is moving from the way many of us think about the EPA, potentially as an adversarial relationship, to more of a partnership. And they're doing this with other sectors of industry, meaningful collaboration, innovative solutions, multimedia perspectives, Mm -hmm. Uh, the smart sectors program includes aerospace, agriculture, cement, oil and gas, iron and steel. So we're viewed as another industry that they want to partner with. Now, one of the things it does seem to provide in that partnership is resources. We want to help you and what it looks like we get in return is by willing to work with the EPA as an industry, it relieves us from some potential nuisance litigation. I mean, there obviously might be some of that involved that might be viewed as a benefit. We're, we're aspiring to a higher level here as an industry, and therefore maybe we can get some help from sort of nuisance things like that. Thoughts about the Smart Sectors Program and the benefits of that for the way I just laid it out?
1: Well, you know, let me go back in history a little bit. We have National Golf Day, as you know, every year in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., and we had a 13-year run before COVID hit. One of the things that I like to do whenever we have National Golf Day in Washington is I like to take the Government Affairs Committee and the GCSA leadership to go to EPA headquarters and meet with the current EPA administrator. We did that in 18 and 19 we're going to do that in 20, but obviously that was canceled. You know, when we went in to see Administrator Wheeler in 2019, he and his team said, why aren't you guys a part of the smart sectors program? That's a no brainer. So I, I said, yeah, definitely. I, I want to make that happen. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. Cause you're right. You got aerospace and ag and, and auto and cement and concrete and all those groups in there. Well, anyway. Fast forward, I reached out to federal smart sector program people there, and they just said there was no room in the inn, right? They they already had about oh. 13 industries as part of that. So there wasn't a lack of desire to work with us. It was more of an FTE problem, right? We just don't have the mm-hmm. staffing to keep adding groups. But what they highly encouraged me to do was to reach out to the regional offices. So for those that don't know this, there are 10 EPA regional offices in the country scattered, you know, everywhere. And, and they said, you, you should talk to them about, they all get to decide what industries that they partner with in the smart sector program at the regional level. And so Frank, it was just like the universe spoke because before I had the chance to like do the outreach on that and, and see what, you know, what the possibilities were for partnership, EPA Region 3 out of Philadelphia reached out to me, and there was major, and there is still some major renovations going on at a property out there called Cobbs Creek in Philadelphia. There's just this master renovation project going on, and EPA came in to help provide some technical advice and expertise on that. Well, they were so wowed by what was going on at that property, they thought, wow, why aren't we partnering with golf in the smart sector? So they said, well, the people on site said call Hava, she can make this happen. So that's how this all started and the ball got rolling. So we started partnering in the smart sector program with EPA Region 3 in Philadelphia and we're calling it outdoor recreation. That's a important focus area for them and it is in other parts of the country. You know, I definitely want to expand and and grow this into other EPA regional offices. And eventually what I'm hoping is when there is some more funding and staffing available at the federal level, that you're going to see a bullet point on the EPA Smart Sector fact sheet that says outdoor recreation is a federal program as well. But getting back to your original question, there's just so many benefits to this partnership. I'm not sure that I want to characterize it as... GCSA getting involved in this translates to less litigation. I'm not sure that's what you were trying to say, but I... You know
0: me well, Hava. I'm going right for the cynical, sarcastic point of view. It's frankly speaking, right? Yeah, I I
1: understand. (laughs) What what I want to do, Frank, with this partnership is I want to help people solve problems. And that's what EPA seems to be wanting to do as well. If there are superintendents that want to help with some wetlands restoration, some stream bank restoration, if they want to make improvements on their golf course, but they're just like, well, it's going to cost too much, it's going to take too much time, I can't, you know, there's no way I can do this. The EPA wants to step in and help them find the ability to do those things. And I'm super impressed with that.
0: Yeah, that that's really critical to have access to those resources to do things that are sometimes outside the capacity of the course to do. Now, is this confined to just Region 3, Hava, or is this something that impacts the other nine regions, EPA regions across the country?
1: It's not completely confined just to EPA Region 3 right now. Obviously, I can be the conduit for any golf course in this country to connect people with people and get the help and support they need. From 2019 up to this point, it has been more of a concentrated focus in the EPA Region 3, which includes Pennsylvania and Delaware, Maryland, Virginia. This
0: is the Chesapeake Bay region, which is a hotbed.
1: Oh, it's a hotbed, you know. That's a whole nother podcast we could talk about golf, yeah. <laughs> you know, support of the cleanup of the Chesapeake Bay. We've done so many amazing things in that space, but this is something we definitely want to go national. But right now, it is kind of concentrated in the Northeast, but it's going to grow and it's going to build over
0: time. So it was really great to have the signing, right? I, I thought the signing experience down there, at, you know, you brought a lot of your government affairs people in there, and you know, I'm looking at the picture in the most recent article in Golf Course Management, and I recognize every single one of those people <laughs> uh, in that picture that are very active in your government affairs group. How much does now your ambassadors and the people in your government affairs superintendents, should they start talking to their local EPA regions about being more active with this? I mean, obviously they'll start with you, but you have a lot of ambassadors out there that are teamed up with politicians. Is that something you might leverage too to capitalize on this EPA program?
1: Oh, there's a whole lot there I want to talk about. Let me back up to the signing ceremony first. Great. That was held at Langston Golf Course, a historical African-American property that's just east of the U.S. Capitol building. So it actually was held in Washington, D.C., I brought the Government Affairs Committee up to Washington to do just general committee business. And so we were in town for a couple of days to having meetings, going to Capitol Hill, and then having this ceremony. So, yeah, you did see them in the audience, but, boy, it was a beautiful sight, a beautiful day. We had just a perfect lineup of speakers, and that included the EPA Administrator um, Adam Ortiz from Region 3, Um, He spoke, as well as Drew Matera. He's the director of agronomy for D.C. Public Golf. So he was kind of provided the education and the information from the superintendent side. Of course, our wonderful CEO, Red Evans, was there. He spoke on behalf of our organization. We also had Craig Kirby there from Golf My Future, My Game, and he spoke. Um, He brings disadvantaged Youth out to the game of golf and introduces it to them and gets them out into urban spaces and he is part of STEM education efforts. So mm-hmm. um, it was awesome to hear from him. And finally, we had Director Tommy Wells. He was our final speaker. He's the head of the DC Department of Environment and Energy. It was a really rock star lineup of people speaking, and they yeah. spoke so beautifully about again the value of green space in communities director wells he loved the fact that the red fox population had come back to the city because of Langston Golf Course. I mean, what a great case study. So anyway, we had a wonderful event and I wish everybody could have been there. Of course, you know, I was on a high, but (laughs) you were asking, I believe, about other members around the country sort of wanting to get involved and should they start talking to other EPA regional offices about this? You know, I want to walk before we run. You know, if anybody's, wholly enthusiastic about this, yeah, I, I would encourage them to maybe speak to me about it. You know, I literally was on the phone with EPA last week and we're putting sort of the metrics for success together for this program. And we have a goal of going to EPA headquarters at National Golf Day next year. And I'm working backwards from that. You know, what are all of the things that we can do together and the success stories that we can generate between now and then that we can share with federal EPA uh, about this partnership? And so it's everything from getting down to the real granular level, it's like having the EPA be able to come into our chapter meetings. We have 11 chapters. Um, within EPA Region 3 and having them come in and building a trust level between, you know, this agency and our members and information sharing and this collaboration. It's also about site visits. You know, how many site visits can we have where EPA can come out to an individual golf course property and maybe, you know, meet with a superintendent, walk the property, talk about challenges, talk about solutions. So we're building these metrics of success And we'd like to play this out over, you know, kind of like a pilot project over a period of time. Hmm. And then once we do that, we want to replicate that in other pockets of the country again. And, you know, so I don't think I can manage 10 smart sector (laughs) programs (laughs) right now, but I want to get to a place where we can. So you walk before you run, but it's all going to be good.
0: Yeah. My original comment about how the EPA is really extending a hand here with this program and trying to be viewed not as adversarial. I know in New York State, our DEC has also had a reputation of being more about enforcement and regulatory and no, don't do that, typical compliance environment. I wonder if this really doesn't mark a shift where we could all change our mindset about relationships with regulators. You know, you've been at this a long time. Is this a real shift in moving from maybe being perceived as more adversarial to being more of a partner? I mean, I want to believe and I do believe we can trust these agencies. You know, not everybody trusts the government. Remember the old Ronald (laughs) Reagan saying, (laughs) right? He killed it. You know, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Right. So I'm wondering if you really think this marks a shift in our perception of, their organization, and their perception of us?
1: Well, I think so, but, you know, it's been slow and incremental over time, and we've had to build a trust level with this agency as we would any. I mean, just thinking about our podcast today, I've been working for GCSA, Frank, for 25 years, and I took over the department in 2013. So, That's been incredibly important for me over my tenure. And again, in 2013, when I took over management of the department, my role changed. I moved away from state relations and went more to a federal Mm -hmm. focus. And in particular, building relationships with federal agencies. It's a personal goal of mine to build a trust level between the regulated community and the regulators. You're in a better position if you can try to work together than work against each other. Having said that, you know, with any federal agency, including EPA, there are going to be things that we disagree about, you know, we're still trying to craft a definition of waters of the United States. And that involves the EPA's (laughs) Office of Water and there's the ping pong back and forth of that over, well, since the Obama administration. So with the Office of Pesticide Programs, uh, that's one of my main roles at GCSA is to follow very deeply what's going on over there at OPP. They're the ones that Mm -hmm. register all the new chemicals. They're the ones that re-examine old chemicals that, you know, have been around for a while. And I've been doing this since at least 2013, if not before. But each of these active ingredients, you know, they come up in the federal register. You get a notice that EPA is examining it. And they're looking at the new data, the new science, Right. My role at GCSA is to work with the EPA to help them make good decisions about the continued use of these products, right? Product stewardship is important and keeping tools in the toolbox is key. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's bringing information and in science and stories of professional land management to these agencies, to these regulators, to these scientists, so that they can be educated about use of these products Not everybody that examines them, not all of them have stepped foot on a golf course, but anyway, I think there is a shift here and it's been a slow and steady buildup over time of just being there. And it didn't start with this. We were asked a few years ago to be a seat at the table at the Federal Advisory Committee for all pesticide policy matters, the Pesticide Policy Dialogue Committee, golf, finally got a seat at that major table And so it's just been slow and steady and we provide good information to them. And it's been a good partnership over time that I think has resulted in this signing at this MOU signing ceremony in September.
0: Yeah, I 100 percent agree with what you said there. When all we do is show up and complain that we don't like that they're restricting us and we don't take the time to understand each other and build that relationship and trust. And we're not going to be viewed the same way. I, for one, am really glad you're at the head of that. You're the one sitting at the table, Hava. You know how I often refer to you as the smartest person there in Lawrence. So we'll be right back and chat more with the smartest person in Lawrence, Kansas. Hava McKeel, the Director of Government Relations for the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. Getting the most out of your playing surfaces, especially when you need it most, requires a high-functioning sand-based system. Managing modern sand-based systems requires the use of sand amendments, plus aeration and top dressing. Dryject does all three of those practices at once. And the sand you use can even be wet. Contact your local Dryject representative for more information or visit dryject.com. Recently, my travels have allowed me to have conversations with golf course superintendents about their spray application technology. And what I've learned is buying a sprayer just because of the color of the metal does not make sense, especially if using GPS-guided systems. Frost Technology specializes in spray technology, so they are your application experts, regardless of the color of the metal. Learn more about this exciting technology at FrostServe.com. That's Frost, S-E-R-V, dot com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking, Hava McKeel. And Hava, when we talk about the value of golf courses, a lot of times we talk about the economic value. We can say how many jobs, we talk about the revenue, we talk about the industry that it supports, and that is a really compelling story to tell. One of the things I noticed uh, in the article that's in the most recent GCSAA relates to what I call ecosystem services, ways that that green space, when maintained as such, Provides these benefits to stormwater runoff, uh, pollinator protection, biodiversity, gas and dust and all the things that large green spaces help with. Is there any discussion about how we might think about monetizing those things as well? I mean, obviously, when you have stormwater management systems, Hava, you know, they cost money to build. Golf courses provide these resources. Are there ways that that conversation, as well as the EPA regulatory environment, understanding those things, there's ways of putting dollar values on that? And is the EPA keen on helping us put dollar values on that?
1: I'll be honest with you, Frank, that has not come up in conversations with the EPA up to this point, at least, you know, with me through this smart sector partnership or honestly in any of the other conversations that I've had with them in my line of work. That sounds like another podcast to bring uh, Mark Johnson, our <laughs> director of environmental programs into. Having said that, I mean, I think it would be good to have those conversations, you know, not to switch subjects on you, but something I'm very particularly focused on right now and interested in, in terms of money, is federal implement- dollars for implementation of best management practices. So you know that we have that watershed moment with GCSAA where I think between 2017 and 2020, we were able to get all 50 states to come up with comprehensive environmental and agronomic best management practice programs in the country. Now we've shifted over to facility adoption. I will tell you the EPA is wildly impressed about that effort. And again, that Mm -hmm. helped to build the trust and the support from their agency to us because of the BMPs initiative. But I don't know if many people know this in the country, but there is a lot of money out there that the federal government gives over to the farming community, the ag community, Mm -hmm. through the USDA, through different conservation programs. And for implementation of BMPs on the ground, I mean, I I kind of use this term loosely, but I think of us as urban ag, and so mm-hmm. I'm just like, where's the money? You know, mm-hmm. I think that we should be given dollars and cents for implementation of conservation efforts and BMPs, just like the ag community does. So that is something that I've been really focused on recently, doing a feasibility study of what opportunities are out there for us to be able to to get access to those dollars as well. Again, to help support whatever kind of improvement projects that golf courses want to do that help translate Mm. to improving the environment.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. I'm so glad you took me down this path. I I agree with you 100%. I've interacted with some Soil Conservation Service people over the years where they go to farms and the cows are walking in the streams. Mm -hmm. And they'll fund a fence or they'll even, you know, allow you to drain some land if it, you know, helps with flooding or stormwater management. So are you suggesting that maybe things like maybe not practice based BMPs, but structural BMPs, BMPs where you're, you know, diverting water, making it so basements don't flood in in certain communities by altering the golf course? I, I know this has happened a lot in Chicago, for example, the Chicago municipal districts where public golf is big tend to be in flooded areas and and Mm -hmm. they actually are working now to repurpose those golf courses and communities one of the things that stops them and private places from doing it is the cost you're suggesting that we might through this program begin to have more access to those dollars to make those water quality uh, improvements that lead to improve water quality
1: That's what I'm sure hoping for. I mean, whether it's uh, stream bank restorations, again, like you said, Mm -hmm. or if it's helping out with putting more wetlands in locations where they need them. I mean, I personally believe we should have access to some federal dollars (laughs) to help support those things. And I'd love to be at the front of helping make that happen for the industry. So
0: You know, though... It's an uphill battle, right? Right. Because the optics, right? Once you start saying, oh, the federal government's giving golf courses money to do blah, blah, blah. I know you're smart enough to have already thought through the chess match we're into now. How does that play out, knowing that the optics problem are there? I had it myself, right? I approached you with a sort of sarcastic way of looking at it, which... Critics might do. Oh, you're doing this because it alleviates you from certain legislation. Oh, that that's the motivation. So talk me through a little bit about how the optics play out in our relationship with the EPA working with golf.
1: Well, you know, I work with a certain segment of the population at EPA, so i I can't speak for everyone that works at that agency and how they feel or don't feel about golf. It, it just in general. The people that I do interact with at EPA, when you educate them on green space and the construct of a golf course, I mean what the land use profile is of a golf course, and then you get into all of the benefits of it it's very reasonable discussions that you have, and they do see the value. Whether or not that translates to them, you know, being able to provide dollars and cents for the implementation of the BMPs that we've just pulled together, you know, that's just something that we're going to have to work toward I deal with less animosity and opposition to golf with the EPA than I do Congress and the public and the media. So that's that's a good. <laughs> that's good. I, I do want to bring up something of interest, though, while we're on this subject. The Biden administration has put as a core focus, I think you know this, environmental justice. This is something we haven't yes. talked about yet on this mm-hmm. podcast. So, you know, that's that social movement that is described as sort of the unfair exposure of marginalized communities uh, Mm -hmm. to harm from pollution, right? That is a EPA priority. And this is what's been fascinating to learn through my interactions with EPA, is that there are actually communities in this country that are mapped out. There's like EJ communities, they're they're redline communities. They've been mapped out. And EPA is interested in finding out where golf courses, and in particular public golf courses, are located within these red line boundaries. And they're focused on two things. They want to know where can we you know, find these golf courses that are located in these red line communities and find out who needs to do environmental improvement projects in these red line communities in order to reduce the pollutant loads there. And if we can do that match, there is hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars distributed to these agencies to help support environmental Mm -hmm. improvement projects. The other thing that they are very much focused on, if not more than that, is equitable access to green space. And so the EPA um, smart sector folks have had an opportunity through my interactions with them to actually go out to a first green event that we hosted i don't know if you're familiar with the first green program
0: 100 percent. yes
1: but that's our stem education program yeah yeah golf courses as learning labs right bringing out children school-aged populations to go out to the golf course and learn about stem education on the golf course and get exposure to the green space and some of these kids that Mm -hmm. come out have never had access to, you know, green space like that. And so they're very interested in that. But again, the EPA, they want to find and locate where these golf courses are in these redline communities, number one, to help find the funding and the technical resources to help support environmental improvement projects within. And also they want to get more and more kids and youth and underserved populations just out onto green spaces in general to improve their quality of life. We just have so many good success stories and opportunities here.
0: Yeah. And Hava, you you know, you've touched a nerve for me because I'm a city kid. I mean, yeah, the ultimately in my teens, the golf course provided me sort of the opportunity is like, well, this is what I want to do. I mean, I grew up in the New York metropolitan area and, you know, a lot of impervious surface, a lot of pavement everywhere, played softball on pavement, you know, would maybe find a field here and there. So I'm aware of the very built up areas where, you know, urbanization, the built environment has compromised the natural environment. And as you well said, we have social justice issues around this because we didn't always treat people right. And we put them in certain areas where things weren't as good. You don't see as much green space in these redlined areas. When we study ecosystem services in these redlined areas, they're hotter. There's less trees. There's all these things that are there. So I'm with you 100% on equitable access to green space. I, you know, I'm like you, been around long enough to remember Jeff Gullickson starting things, even Audubon International back in the day with the school programs. We've been building to what is really a wildly successful first green program. I'm going to ask you a tough question. Has nothing to do with the nicety here. We just came through a very critical decision in California where this issue came up. Wait, what do we got a golf course here for? These people need housing we got to get rid of this thing and put housing there. That's a tough conversation to have. It may be outside your purview. I'm sure you thought about it. How do you reconcile this uh, for yourself or for us as an association where that issue gets brought up and then thrown back at us that, hey, well, you shouldn't have a golf course here. You know, you should have housing for these people.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I'm going to err on the side of golf courses <laughs> and all of the many benefits that, you know, I don't know if it's a fair conversation. I mean,
0: it's not, it's not, it's not. that's what makes it hard, right? It makes it hard. It's
1: not fair and it makes it hard. You know, I mean, I just have to lean in on, I still believe in a city, especially of that size with that much urbanization you got to have the green spaces in those communities. And I still believe, you know, in the total picture of people, planet, and profit, it's very valuable to have golf courses in communities. You, you don't want to pull the ball out. And they, you, you're asking for more problems then. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, what we're talking about in some ways is access, right? One of the things First Green is doing so well Is it's providing access to a green space that many of these people, if they don't play golf, they're like, well, it's just a golf course. I don't play golf. And, you know, obviously the optics and perceptions of what golf is, not necessarily, you know, what it actually is. In public golf, it's a diverse, population of men and women of all types of races and everything you'd expect in a public environment. But there is uh, quite a bit of restricted access, right? Because we play a game, you hit a ball, you you don't want to get hit, you could get hurt. Could we do a little bit better in maybe embracing the St. Andrew's model where we close for a day and open it up to the public and get a tax abatement because of that? Or anything we do to increase access? Could there be some Benefits on the other side to us, as a you know, especially in public golf from a profit perspective?
1: Well, what I'm seeing, Frank, is a movement towards taking golf courses within themselves, which are already a green space, and creating a community space, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, Mm -hmm. where there's a lot of different things that go on there outside of just the plane of golf. And golf courses are making a name for themselves now by creating other opportunities for recreation within that property. And so whether it's snow skiing in the winter or, you know, I I don't know, movies at night, (laughs) Mm -hmm. walking trails around the property, I mean, things like that. So I think there's a movement toward that. I think that's an important movement. It's going to show even more and greater value of that public land than just delivering the golf game there.
0: Hava, I can't let you out of here without just talking about the wonderful department you run with Bob and Mike. Is there anybody else? Have I missed anybody? Sarah's
1: our new addition. She's our administrative support person. And boy, do we need support. So we can't. You... <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that could fall through the cracks without her. So we
0: need to recognize Sarah. Uh, that's exactly right. And, and it sounds like you're coming up on 10 years of being ahead of just this department. And I have to say, The thing that continues to attract me to the way you approach this is when you talk about golf course superintendents as professional land managers. Mm -hmm. And I really wish they would think of themselves as that sometimes. You know, first off, we've got a lot of people managing golf courses who aren't members of the GCSA. Some of them Mm -hmm. probably listen to this podcast. What do you say when you meet superintendents that – still really aren't grasping that you guys are professional land managers. I know you live in a world where, you know, you get to meet the the best superintendents who are all aspiring to the kinds of, you know, things that are out there to improve environmental stewardship. What's the pitch to the non-member about how professional land management is the is the posture and the way we want to present ourselves to the public?
1: Wow. Okay, you... you know, if you were looking for easy <laughs> questions,
0: you weren't going to get them here. I wanted to make sure I gave you a chance to really talk philosophically, as that I know you believe deeply about this, and I, and I want to give you the chance to talk about it is really really what I'm asking for. I, yeah. I know you think about these folks as professionals, and I wonder sometimes. They don't always think of themselves as such, and especially the ones that aren't members of the national or the local associations.
1: Well, I mean, just break down their job and the construct of their job, whether it's Using IPM, the science behind that, whether it's the technology that they use, how they go about managing the golf course, literally, Mm -hmm. you deconstruct the way that they perform their job. I mean, that all adds up to professional land management. They're not just yeah. walking around throwing fertilizer on the sidewalk and, you know, and not That's sweeping right. it up and letting it go down into the stormwater drain systems, but right. they use technology. They're educated. First of all, most mm-hmm. of our superintendents have some type of education, formal or not. And then they mm-hmm. and they use the science of the technology, the weather state. I mean, all the weather stations, all of the, the equipment that they use. It's a science. I mean, when you talk to them and you break all this down, I mean, this completely adds up to being a professional land manager. This practice of golf course management is not done just sort of off the cuff and willy nilly. I mean, you can't Mm -hmm. get to a green space like you have on a golf course without having some kind of level of professional management within you. So yeah. I don't have to give too many people pep talks about them being professional land managers. I think they know that. They just don't want to tout that they are. Right. That's and a good that's point. more of the motivation that I have to provide. Yeah.
0: Now listen, I'm going to get you out of here on this, and it's a little bit of a departure. You know, you mentioned it in passing that the people who do this work are critical—the professional land managers, the golf course superintendents, you know, the leadership. We also rely a lot on labor and labor Mm -hmm. that doesn't always live in this country. Uh, We sit here with a lot of problems facing us immigration-wise and the way we think about it and the way we manage it. Do you see this as a chronic problem that we're still going to struggle with for a lot of years? Or is there any light at the end of the tunnel? And the reason I'm asking is I really believe this EPA thing is the brightest light I've seen our association sort of have in a really long time. And so I'm like, okay we're on a right path. We're partners with the government here. What about on this other big side of labor? How are we doing uh, with government relations, with our interactions with politicians, with general sentiment in the industry about where the next step is for the next generation of, of labor?
1: You know, I'm really glad you brought that up, Frank, because labor through our member needs survey has risen to the top on the minds mm-hmm. of the members concern. right? I think it was water mm-hmm. all these years. And then all of a sudden it's, where am I going to get people to help me manage this property? I, I will tell you just very niche in the government affairs area in the terms of labor and immigration issue. We've been very focused on government programs out there right that provide labor source like you're familiar with the h2b visa program yep, so yep. we fight very hard to preserve and protect that program and it's been a ping pong match is all i can say over administration to administration mm-hmm. we also are deeply involved when comprehensive immigration reform comes up in congress as something that congress is serious about trying to move forward and that's it hasn't happened for a while But that's kind of the space that I operated in in labor and immigration. However, I will tell you what I have seen is this evolution at GCSA over the last several years with a real concerted focus holistically on solving labor challenges. So... Whereas, you know, we used to mostly focus on kind of career development and individual job placement and the government affairs department really focused on H2B program and comprehensive reform. Now we've moved into things like the first green program, introducing new populations of people to the game of golf through the STEM Mm -hmm. education program. Who knows how many people that participate in that program eventually will see golf course management as a career choice down the road, right? We've also started moving into the FAA. Mm -hmm. We had two of our staff just like two weeks ago, I believe it was, hosting a booth there at the National FFA Convention Mm -hmm. and introducing an entire new market of youth to golf course management as a potential career choice. We're also you know, looking at all sorts of other uh, programs. I'm forgetting the name of it right now, but it's a veterans focused program, right? It's veterans that are coming back from war and they're trying right. to get back into the folds of society and creating a career path forward for them mm-hmm. in the golf course management industry. So. I'm really proud of the way of GCSA is looking at this labor problem, which I do think is going to be around for quite a while because we just, the demographics suggest that, right? And, my kids that are 14, 16, you know, they're different. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to they don't want to, you know, work the hours and the kinds of jobs that we did when we were young. And so it's the the demographics of the country just show that labor's going to be a continued challenge for a prolonged period of time and we've got to get creative in the ways that we introduce new populations of people in this country to want to work in a career in golf course management. I like what we're doing at GCSA to address this.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thank you. I'm so glad I asked that question because there is a comprehensive approach that I think unless you put it all together like you just did, The average member wouldn't see the whole picture. Yeah, I I know the FFA push is getting big. The first green, you're exactly right about that. The immigration issue is one that just really perplexes me. You have people at the border who want to just come here and work and can't get across. So that is a component, I think, enriching the populations of people that English isn't their first language and giving access to more science-based information to those folks to contribute And I think ultimately automation is probably going to play a component in this as well. I agree. But but Hava, I'll tell you, as we wrap up, I I will say your drumbeat of this profession as professional land managers is exactly the sort of mantra we need to have when we approach uh, any of these issues, relationships, discussions with people who don't have any idea what we do. If we take it away from just an outdoor recreation space too. I'm managing land at a very professional level, perceptions of the career and the profession will continue to change. And that's going to be really positive. Like it has been for the EPA program. Thank you so much, Hava, for taking the time. I I know you have a busy schedule, and I really appreciate you answering some of my dopey questions that might have been (laughs) off the mark in the spirit of really making what we're doing at the GCSA more transparent and more accessible to everybody that's a member. Really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Frank, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about these things that I'm very passionate about. I I did remember while you were talking, it was Operation Double Eagle. That's Ah, the program where we helped transition the active duty military uh, personnel into careers, you know, in golf course management. I'd want to make a
0: plug for that. Yeah, absolutely. And up here in the Northeast, we have some veteran farmers programs. Uh, Listen, we can't do enough for these people that were willing to put their life on the line so we could live the life that we live. I, you know, we've had a, discussions of tax abatements for veterans in our school district, right? I mean, yeah. the sacrifice that these folks give is is worthy of whatever we can provide them.
1: Exactly. Well, thank you again for the opportunity to speak about this stuff. You get me all kind of excited here.
0: <laughs> That's good. I'm glad to hear that. And I'll see you in Orlando. I'll be there. Thanks, Hava. Appreciate you joining me. Hava McKeel, Director of Government Affairs for the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. Thanks to Hava McKeel, Director of Government Relations for the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dry Jack, the only machine that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. Spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios by Nate Richardson, theme music by my son, Tucker Rossi, artwork and avatar by my daughter, Nicole Rossi, executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thanks for joining me.